If you want to turn in your Bibles or look in your bulletin, the passage for tonight is Psalm 131. And I'll, I'll read that again. It's great to be here to worship with you all this evening. And look forward to sharing a little bit more about RUF afterwards. So Psalm 131. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, Psalm 131 that we just read, it's the 12th of the 15 Psalms of Ascent, which were these psalms that the Israelites would sing as they would go up to Jerusalem for various festivals. And it's, it's been called by many maybe one of the most beautiful psalms in the Psalter. It's short, it's sweet. I almost like to think of it as kind of like this Hebrew haiku. Remember having to write a haiku like in grade school or something? Uh, and yet at the same time as we read this psalm, I can't think of a statement that might be more opposed to the attitude of our culture today. We live in a culture where the mantra is the exact opposite often. Our hearts are lifted up, and our eyes are high, and we can do anything if we just work hard enough. You know, we, we train our kids in this rhetoric. You, you can be anything you want it to be. Nothing is too wonderful or too hard for you. And so, as we even just confessed earlier, we, we are running around busily trying to accomplish all these things, whether it's in the academic world or it's in our careers or it's in our own personal lives, in our homes, in our love lives. And the last thing that we are is calm and quiet, like this psalm is talking about. Instead, we're loud and busy. And we wear that busyness as a badge of honor often. You know, and as I was thinking about this idea, I, I was listening to one of the few musicals I've actually gotten into uh, that many probably know, Hamilton. And uh, this one song, the very first song on the, the album, stuck out to me that it's this seemingly tame moment of this can-do attitude that we just kind of accept. And many of you might know the, the chorus from this first track. I'll read it rather than making you hear me sing it. Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait. Just you wait. And if you know that song, you basically, the whole song is just chronicling all the amazing things that Alexander Hamilton accomplished, how he went from obscurity to, you know, doing all these things that we know him for today, getting even on our currency. And it tells us at one point how he did this. He got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. And again, I think maybe you hear that and you're like, yeah, 
That's right. That's, that's how you do things. That's how you get ahead. That's how life works. And there's a certain sense that that's true. There is some value in that. There's an incredible value to hard work. But I think that musical, as the narrative itself will reveal, shows that it's still this attitude is clouded with sin. This desire to even do good things, marvelous good things, transforms into narcissism. And we see that with Hamilton. How did Hamilton's story end? I don't don't think I'm ruining the musical for anyone. I mean, it's been out for a while, and it's like a historical fact what happened to Hamilton. His pride led to him getting in a duel with his rival, Aaron Burr, and getting killed. That's where all that ambition landed him. And, And while that musical doesn't, you know, it doesn't hide that fact, it's in the musical, Uh, It seems to really focus on all the accomplishments, all the ambition. It fails to see the connection between that and his demise. And, you know, I'm pointing something out in the world, but we wonder, what about in the church? Is the church known as calm and quiet? Are we content to be small and work in the obscurity at times? We are, but we often fall short of this. We often adopt the same attitude as Alexander Hamilton. Though we might not sing about it and be as outwardly boastful about it, but still in our minds, in our hearts, we're thinking maybe, there's a million things I haven't done for Jesus. Add that in there. And just you wait. I'm going to do them. And so this psalm, it's for Christians and non-Christians alike. It's a wonderful rebuke and reminder, loving reminder of the kind of dependent life of peace and joy that our God has created all of us for. And the psalm calls us to this in kind of three movements. First, it highlights the pride that we've been talking about that we're prone to. Two, the humility that we need. And finally, the hope that gets us there. So let's first look at the pride. Think about what what is verse 1 saying here? Essentially, verse 1 is reminding us that at its core, if if you dig down into pride and see what's really going on, it boils down to an attempt to be God. The problem with pride isn't that it's like distasteful or unattractive or uncool. It's that often our hearts are really just trying to dethrone God. And we see that in this phrase, that I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And these two Hebrew words that are translated great and marvelous, they're only elsewhere used in Scripture in a positive sense in reference to God himself. I mean, David, in another psalm, Psalm 86, he says, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Jeremiah cries out, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. 
The Lord God of Israel is high and is lifted up. And he does occupy himself with great and marvelous things all the time, 24-7. And that's not a megalomaniac, prideful God. That's who God is, as we were just talking about earlier, just singing about. He is the creator of all things, the fountain of all life and all goodness. And if you think about the book of Job, that is one of the big messages of the book. Um, again and again, God is depicted as the one who does great things beyond searching out, marvelous things beyond number. And even this is what Job gets rebuked with. The, the last of Job's friends, he, he's trying to drive this point home in chapter 37. He says, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. And then there's this passage where God himself actually comes and, and rebukes Job. And at the very end of, that, of the book, Job himself admits and repents. He says, therefore I uttered what I did not understand, two things, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. For all that's going on in Job, I mean, it's a massive book, a lot of issues going on there. But one of the big things that is revealed about Job is he had this pride within himself. As he faced all this suffering coming into his life, he thought... I could run the universe better than this. I, I could do this better than God's doing this. What is God doing? How, how could he treat me this way? And yet he learns, as we just said then, that he had, he had uttered things that he did not understand. I love how in the, this book, I'd highly recommend to you, in uh, Zach Eswine's book, Sensing Jesus, he explores this theme, and he tries to look at how does this specifically play out in our lives. It's one thing to say, oh, we're trying to be God, but well, how is that playing out? And he points out how people, especially people involved with ministry, he's kind of honing in, the book's a little bit directed towards pastors, but applies to everyone. He says, what we try to do is take on the incommunicable attributes of God. And then those attributes are simply the attributes that God alone has. His omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence. The fact that he's everywhere, that he's able to do anything, that he knows all things. And so, that kind of explores how we either try to be everywhere for all, we want to be in everyone's lives, and taking care of everything, or we try to fix it all, we want to be that guy that everyone goes to, that when they're having a difficult problem. Or maybe we just want to be the know-it-all, and we cut through everything, and we discern what's right or wrong, and make sure everyone's lined up, has all their ducks in a row. And yet, as we do this, even with really good purposes in mind, even if we're like trying to proclaim the gospel, trying to build up the church, trying to love our neighbors, if we do it with this attitude of almost being godlike, having a Messiah complex, we're doing something that is almost at the end of the day demonic. Just as Satan wants to displace God as ruler of the universe, when we're prideful, we're joining forces with him. And that pride 
this verse is pointing out as well, it doesn't just affect our relationship with God. It goes out horizontally as well. That's what, what's going on here when it's talking about David saying, my eyes are not raised too high. He's pointing out the fact that if it's the opposite, if his eyes are raised too high, he's looking at others with judgment and contempt. He's maybe thinking, you are, are, are doing this, you know, if, you don't, if you're not going to help me accomplish my goals, then just get out of my way. Or maybe we look at people who we don't think are that busy and we mark them as lazy and just don't really want to have anything to do with them. Trying to be God in your pride, it, it doesn't just dishonor God. It, it destroys those around us. And once again, I'll bring up Hamilton. What happened with Hamilton? I mean, yeah, he got shot by Aaron Bird. Did that just affect him? No, it affected his family. He left children fatherless and a wife without a husband. And then he encouraged this jealousy and reactionary pride in his peers. That that ambition, it had ripple effects to everyone around him. So the question is, where do you see this pride in your life? I think often, if you're a Christian, you've been in church for a while, you're thinking, okay, duh, like, I know I'm not supposed to be prideful. That's, that's obvious. But because we know that, our, just, our pride stays hidden. We, we want to come across as, oh, I'm not, I'm not trying to boast about myself. And I think one of the ways to maybe look for it in our lives is to look at those points where you're experiencing anxiety, where you're experiencing anger, where you're experiencing deep sadness. Those emotions that sneak up on you. There's a lot of factors in all those mental structures, structure, ugh, struggles. And I don't want to overly simplify them. But I've realized when I've slowed down and examined what, what's going on in my heart. Why, why am I so frustrated with this? Why am I so disappointed about this? It's often my pride. It's, it's that I want to do great and wonderful things and it's not happening. You know, I've seen this even this week. Yeah, this was welcome week. It's kind of the craziest week for college ministry. You're like on campus 24-7 trying to meet students. And as I mentioned, I kind of had more of a, a more open launch. I actually did events and was trying to invite people. And, you know, I would go home after spending hours on campus and talking to students and, and just kind of anxious and, and tired and a little sad and wondering, do these students like me? Do they think I'm cool? Are they going to come to the cookout? Are they going to come to our Bible studies? Are they going to want to be a part of our group? I want to do great and marvelous things. I want to see people saved. I want to see people's lives changed. But God alone does that. I, I can't make that happen. We've thought a lot about the pride. Let's move on here. What is the humility that we need in the face of this destructive pride? And the psalmist gives us a quick snapshot of that in verse 2. So let's look, look back at your text, verse 2. He says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
You know, there's one quote by this famous mathematician, and then he became a theologian, Pascal, and that has always kind of stuck with me, haunted me a bit. He says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And there was actually a study done at a university recently that kind of demonstrated some of the truth of Pascal's proverb. The researchers in this study, they brought a bunch of people into the lab and they told them basically that they were going to be asked to sit alone for like 10 or 20 minutes just by themselves, and they, and they took everything away from them, their phones, their watches, you know, anything they could have entertained or distracted themselves with. And then, though, they also had them, they had a button in the room, and they had them press it, and when they pressed it, it would give them electric shock. And they told them to rate, you know, to press it just for practice, and to rate it, and to say, just tell them, you know, how, how unpleasant was it, and would you pay money to not receive that shock again? And almost everyone said, yes, they would pay money to avoid that shock. That shock. It, was, it was painful. It was unpleasant. And then they, did, they just asked them to sit there in the room with this button to entertain themselves with their own thoughts. The only two rules were uh, they, they weren't allowed to get out of their chair, and then they weren't allowed to like, go to sleep. Because that would be cheating. Um, they were just there. They just had to entertain themselves with their own thoughts. And the researchers going into this are thinking, nobody is going to, like, hit that button. That would be absurd. Like, they just said they would pay money not to do it. Well, at the end of the study, 70% of the men and 25% of the women chose to shock themselves instead of just sitting quietly for 10 to 20 minutes. What's going on there? Like, why is it so hard to be quiet and still? Why would you choose to shock yourself painfully instead of dealing with that? Boredom? I don't know. I, I think it goes deeper than that. There's something painfully humbling about sitting and doing nothing. And even more, as we sit quietly, as we slow down, we face ourselves, our own souls, and the hunger of our souls, and the fact that we're restless, and we won't find our rest until we find it in God. And that comes to the forefront. I think that was partly what was going on there. And so that is what David is getting into a little bit in this verse, this idea of calm and quiet. And he uses the metaphor of this child to kind of tease that out a little bit. And that's a common picture, even Jesus, that Jesus uses, of what it means to be a Christian. He says in Matthew 18, he says to his disciples, they, they ask who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, they're thinking, we want to be doing great and marvelous things. And then Jesus calls a child to him, and he, he says to them, truly, I say to you, if you don't turn and become like a child... You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I think the, the littleness, the humility of a child is definitely partly what David's getting at here. But he even nuances things a little bit further. He uses this 
idea of weaning. He says his soul is like a weaned child with its mother. What the heck is weaning? What's, what's going on here? Well, if you're a parent, you've had a child, especially if you're a mom, you probably know that weaning is a process of going, getting the child to go from the mother's milk to solid, regular, normal food. It's kind of this landmark thing. And actually, our daughter Amelia was born a year ago. Uh, and so over the past couple months, we've been trying, you know, trying to make that transition. But we're very familiar of what an unweaned child is like. They're constantly needy. You can't really weed them to feed them to fend for themselves or to feed themselves. They're always crying out with various needs. They don't there isn't this trust yet that the parents will really provide what, what the child needs. And that's what David is trying to get at here with this weaned child picture. One commentator explains that what's going on here is it's a picture of a child who's no longer crying out in hunger for her mother's breast, but who seeks out the mother for her warm embrace and nurturing care. Again, like you've been around young kids, if you've had this experience, it seems to be like this miraculous transition that this child would go from demanding to, to not being demanding, to from treating mom like a vending machine to actually just coming up to mom to give her a hug with you know no ulterior motive. And with this metaphor. David, he's just drilling down into our pride. You have to ask, why do we want to be occupied with great and marvelous things? Why do we want to displace God and be rulers of our own lives? It's because we don't trust God. We don't believe he's really going to care for us and provide for us. We don't believe he's a strong, caring, heavenly father. Just like babies, we create God like a vending machine. And when that vending machine isn't giving us what we want, we just start wailing out. Screaming, hoping if we do it loud enough, maybe the vending machine will give us something. A lack of calm and quiet in your life, it's, it's symptomatic of a utilitarian relationship with God. So it's not just humility, but trust as well that David's trying to get us to. That's the antithesis of pride. Again, I keep thinking about this psalm as I was out on campus this week. Starting something new, it's very small. There's lots of other, there's some other groups on campus. You know, they've been there for 30, 40 years. They've got a lot more going on. Very few students know even what RUF is. Uh, just everything I do feels very small and unnoticed. Not doing big and marvelous things. And often I'm either battling with that disappointment at the slowness of the growth, or I'm, or I'm like in high gear, working feverishly to get stuff done, maybe thinking in my mind, judging, my eyes being haughty, 
judging the other groups for what I think is wrong with them and what they're doing and how we're going to do it better rather than rejoicing in how God is at work in those groups. It can be so hard to just be calm and quiet, to trust that God is at work, that His kingdom is advancing, that He's going to provide everything we need, and all we need to do is just faithfully, day by day, carry out the callings that He's given us, whatever they are, whether it's in the home or the work or with me on the campus, even if it goes unnoticed. So how do we get to this humility? Well, we're going to close with looking at the hope that gets us there. And David is the author of this psalm. And very early on, this psalm would have been, you would think, oh, duh, David wrote this psalm. This really fits with him. Early on in his life, it seemed like he almost had this natural, trusting personality or something. He was just very humble, shepherd boy. Even when Saul was anointed king and is trying, or, or when David was anointed king and Saul is trying to kill him, you know, he's, he's very humble about it. And you're like, maybe that's just David. He's just a humble guy. But if we remember, later on in David's life, after he becomes king, he uses that kingly power to sleep with another man's wife and have that man murdered. And then later on, in another moment when the Lord removes his restraining power over his sin, this same guy, David, he takes a census of Israel, and the purpose is to just consolidate his military power out of pride and self-reliance. He wanted to be occupied with great and marvelous things. So there's a tension here, even with David himself. How, How can it hypocrite like David write and sing this song? And how can we sing it when we fail in so many points? Well, let's look at verse 3 again and think about that. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You know, this last verse here, it's not just a familiar tagline that David just kind of added, how to have it, just slap it on there. But it actually points us back to a psalm we just sang earlier, Psalm 130. If you look over there, if you want to look in your Bibles or just listen to me read it, we read in Psalm 130, David writing, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. What is the hope David is directing us to? It can cut through our pride and produce this childlike humility. Well, it's clear from this passage, the only thing that that could do that to David's heart 
was the contemplation of this amazing reality of God forgiving our sins. Steadfast love, plentiful redemption from all our iniquities. To wait on a God who does something like that is something worth waiting for. And so when David was singing this song with sincerity, he was singing it knowing he really had no right to rest in God's arms, like a child with his mother. But it was only through grace. And this whole idea of forgiveness of sins, it of course points us forward to the gospel. Because in the Old Testament, it was, in some sense, there was a tension what, how can an infinite, almighty God forgive sin? Forgive the wicked kind of sins that we just talked about, that David did in his pride. And yet, in the New Testament, we see how this makes sense in Jesus' death on the cross. And the amazing thing in connection with the psalm is that it, it is through the humility of Jesus that he accomplished this plentiful redemption. God's not calling us in this humility to do something that he hasn't entered in, into himself. I mean, that's what we see with Jesus. That's what Paul tells us about in Philippians chapter 2. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one that's co-eternal with the Father, who rightly occupies himself with great and marvelous things. He did not count that status as somebody to be held on to tightly. But he literally became a little child. He took on human nature and the role of a servant. At the end of his ministry, it looked like nothing great or marvelous had been accomplished. Even his closest disciples deserted him. And yet it is through that humility that Jesus secured the redemption that David hopes in and that we can hope in. Though Jesus was perfectly humble, perfectly calm and quiet, he took the punishment that our noisy and busy pride deserved. His humility is what makes our salvation and our humility possible. As we get and hear what Psalm 131 is saying in verse 3 that's pointing back to 130, as we understand the depth of our sin, and yet the greatness of God's mercy on the cross, we will be shaped into people who have this quiet trust. Even when we face terrible trials and temptation, we'll be surprised in how it shows up in our hearts. We'll find ourselves thinking just like Paul did in Romans 8.32. If he who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all, how will he not give us all things, all other things, graciously. The more we see this deepest need for our sin being dealt with, the more we can quietly trust David, trust God, and have the posture that David has in this psalm. So that's the question to leave you with tonight. Where, what is your hope? Where is your heart directed towards? Is it proving yourself by great marvelous things? Is it justification by busyness? 
Or is it justification by faith through the grace of Jesus Christ? Is your soul content to trust the Lord and to trust Him even in difficult circumstances that come your way? People of God, hope in the Lord this time, forth, and forevermore. Let's pray.